spiritual practices, salvation by grace, the book of Isaiah, and why doesn't John talk about the kingdom of God? All that and more this week on The Backdrop. Welcome to The Backdrop, everybody. This is Curtis. This week, we are going to go on some tangents, rabbit holes that I could have gone down but didn't have time to in my sermon this week. First off, let's talk about spiritual practices. Spiritual practices, or as they're sometimes called spiritual disciplines, are something that we really value quite highly at Pomona Valley Church. Leslie led us in one of the classic spiritual disciplines uh, this weekend, a practice called Lectio Divina. It is one of many, many practices that one might use to open themselves up to God and, and allow the Spirit to shape us, as we talked about in the sermon this week. Over time at Pomona Valley Church, we would like to be exposed to and try out some of those different spiritual practices. Not only the classic spiritual disciplines you might find in Richard Foster or Dallas Willard's books on the subject, but all the different things that one could use to open themselves up to God. And we think that's a really broad list. God can use all sorts of different things to shape us and does use all sorts of different things to shape us. And they aren't just quiet, contemplative sorts of practices like Lectio. Divina. So over time, we will, as part of our experiential time, be engaging in spiritual practices together. We've talked about this concept of a rhythm of life, that we want to have intentional spiritual practices that we engage with on a regular basis because we want God to shape the life that we are living. And we will get into that in future at Pomona Valley Church. Um, just for those who do want to engage a little bit more in this idea of spiritual practices or, or explore what the different options are, um, there are some really good books on the subject, um, including the ones I referenced by Dallas Willard and Richard Foster. Those are some of the modern classics of that uh, topic, if you will. But there are also other books that are in some ways a little bit more accessible than the books by Foster and Willard. Um, and those include, there's a book by John Ortberg called The Life You Always Wanted that goes into spiritual practices in a more um, accessible, realistic, one might say, way. And there's also a, a big, thick book by Adele Calhoun that is the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. And it goes through d dozens and dozens of different practices and ideas for what, what someone might try as a way of opening themselves to, up to God. And the important thing to keep in mind here is that different practices are going to connect with different people, different personalities, different seasons of life. There is not a one-size-fits-all sort of thing when it comes to spiritual practices. God uses, again, all sorts of different ways to shape us. Part of how we find out which disciplines, which practices um, we want to engage in, we enjoy, are effective in shaping us, part of it is just experimentation. It's trying different practices and seeing which ones God seems to be using in this season of our life. And so um, these, these books that have different ideas can be really helpful and we would encourage people to check them out. Another book that is a little bit different is called uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary. I think we've also mentioned that on the podcast in the past at some point, and it includes some more mundane practices or ways that our everyday life can be seen as a spiritual practice or could be used as a spiritual practice. Um, so it's kind of interesting as well. And then the last thing I wanted to mention on the spiritual practices front is a podcast that Meredith really enjoys. It's called the Next Right Thing podcast. And it's a little bit different than the books. I mean, it's a different medium, obviously. It's a podcast as opposed to a book. But it is also designed to introduce, uh, tell some stories around, and then recommend some different spiritual practices that might work in the course 
course of everyday life. So those are some resources you might want to check out if you want to learn more about spiritual practices or if you want to think more about which ones might be effective for you. We have found that sometimes people are unaware of just how many different varieties of spiritual practices there are and how many different ways God might use to shape us, and that sometimes people are less intentional about following Jesus in this way of opening themselves up to God's Spirit just because they don't know what some of the options are and they haven't found ways that actually connect with them or work in their real everyday life. And so we are committed as a church to opening up these different practices, exposing ourselves to them, and then trying them out and seeing what God might do through them in our lives and in the life of Pomona Valley Church. The second tangent that I would have liked to have gone into this weekend, but obviously didn't have time to, is I made mention at the end of the sermon that this passage, John 3, uh, the story of Nicodemus coming to see Jesus, is often taken in a very individual sort of way. Our culture is individualistic, and so often we read the Bible through the lens of individualism as well. And while there is a component of individual um, repentance and decision to follow Jesus in this passage, individual belief, there is also, as I as I mentioned, the reality that when, when we're talking about being born again, born from above, as Jesus says it, we are not born as individuals. The ancient world did not think of the nuclear family as primary in the way that we do today. So the resonances that someone might hear from the ancient world and what Jesus is saying of being, being born from above is not, you will have a new father, God, period. It's you will have a new family, a new you'll be a part of a new people whom God is putting together. And so I referenced that this weekend and wanted to just reinforce that and go a little step further. And that is to say that all through the Bible, you see this reality that God's plan A is to have a people who represents God to the world. This is from the very beginning when God creates Adam and Eve and then uh, gives them the task of ruling over being God's representatives to creation as a whole. God has plans for what he wants to do with creation and then gives Adam and Eve that task. And you can see that it's not just an individual task by God's command to them in Genesis, which is to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, fill the earth with human representatives of God to to form the earth, the earth alongside God into what God intended for it to be all along. God's plan is not for Adam and Eve to do that work alone. It's not simply for God to do that work or for Adam and Eve in conjunction with God to, to do that work. God's plan is for there to be a people, humanity, that does the work of God in the world. And this is continued in the story of Abraham, that Abraham will be God's uh, blessing to the world around it, but not just Abraham. God is going to give Abraham a family, a people who will be God's representatives of blessing in the world around them. You see that in the way that God speaks to Israel in the law, that they are supposed to be a people who operate in the way that God would want them to operate so that they stand out from the world around them and show the world around them what God is like. And it just keeps going all the way through scripture. The idea is not that holy individuals are the ones who represent God to the world. It is that God has a people that represents God to the world. We've talked in the past about the theological concept of the Trinity and how because God is Trinity, 
God necessarily needs a group of people to represent God's self to the world. Emphasis on group there. The relational aspects of God's people are a crucial piece of showing the world what God is like. God is not an individual, and so individuals are not the primary uh, means by which God shows God's self to the world. The primary means is through God's people. And so when Jesus is talking about being born again, those resonances of God's people being representatives to the world, bringing life and light and witness, um, those are all there. And they've been, they're a continuation of what scripture has been saying all along. And because we are such an individualistic culture, this is a message that we need to remind ourselves about over and over and over again, because we're going to naturally read scripture in in an individualistic way when that's not how it's intended to be read. And it's not that we can't find anything true when we read it that way, but it is the case that we're going to miss some important parts about what God is saying, what Jesus is saying about the life that God offers if we read it purely individualistically. The relational side of God's people and the the way in which our the quality of our relationships with one another reflect God to the world, those are just as important as our individual relationship with God, our individual being shaped by the Spirit. We need to be a community shaped by the Spirit because that is crucial to God's plan for the world, that God's people who have been shaped by the Spirit together are representing God. Okay, third little tangent that we can go into here on the backdrop that wouldn't quite have fit in the sermon this weekend, and that's around the idea of condemnation. The passage that we looked at makes it very clear that Jesus is not coming into the world to condemn the world. He is not looking to punish people for not believing. And yet, condemnation is, and the passage says, has already happened. So what is going on here? We often think of condemnation as punishment. That just seems like it makes sense in a lot of ways. But when we look at how this passage is talking about condemnation, that isn't really what's going on here. And that I did mention that in my sermon, that Jesus is not just waiting to punish people for not believing. What is happening is that being shaped by the world is its own condemnation. It is not possible to experience the life that Jesus is offering if you have been shaped by the world. So you are not being punished with death or being excluded from the life of God. It is a natural consequence of what has shaped you. When the world shapes us, what comes with it is death because it is not possible to live into the abundant life of God, at least not fully. Those who have not been shaped by the Spirit, who have not believed in Jesus, simply can't see in the sense that John uses the word see. They can't see the life that is offered and they can't experience it and taste it in the way that God would want them to. We are given the free choice of being shaped by the world or shaped by the Spirit. And then there are consequences that accompany those choices, not as punishment, but just as reality. If you have been shaped to see the world as a world of scarcity, it is not possible to live into the abundance that Jesus offers. Not because Jesus wants to exclude you from that, but because you just can't see it. I'm reminded of the passage in The Last Battle, if any of you are C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia fans out there, where the dwarves are sitting in what they see as a dark shed, but what the other characters see as Aslan's country, this beautiful garden. I think this same idea is what C.S. Lewis is getting at with that image, that those who have been shaped by the Spirit can see 
something that those who have been shaped by the world simply cannot. Not because the, those shaped by the world, or the dwarves in this case, are being punished for something, but because their eyes just have not been opened. This is, I think, what is behind the concept of original sin that sometimes gets talked about as if it's this, I don't know, contagious genetic stain that gets passed on from one generation to another through, I don't know, DNA or RNA or something like that. But I think it's more accurately described as when we grow up in a world that's been shaped by the world and not by the spirit, then we are naturally shaped by the world. And the consequences that come with that are going to accompany that shaping. And it's only when we can break out of that, open ourselves up to God and allow the spirit to shape us in an alternate way that we can overcome that condemnation that naturally comes from being a part of being shaped by the world. Original sin is strange when it seems arbitrary and punitive, but I find it more understandable seen in this light. That it's a natural consequence of being shaped by the world, which is inevitable until and unless we allow the spirit to shape us differently. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world because he came to show this alternate way of being, to help people to see that being shaped by the spirit leads to life in a way that being shaped by the world naturally and inevitably cannot. So in this light, God's condemnation of the world is not so much him standing and guarding salvation and saying, no, you can't come in. It's more just naming the reality that you have been shaped in a way that leads towards death. And I'm not going to allow that to continue indefinitely. I think when the Bible talks about God's judgment, this is what it means, that at some point God is going to say, enough, I cannot sit and watch the world be shaped in a way that leads to death again and again and again. There is some real sense, on the other hand, that the world almost condemns itself, that by shaping one another generation after generation in ways that lead inevitably to death, the world enacts condemnation. And then God, ultimately through Jesus, is trying to interrupt that endless cycle of condemnation with grace and with life. God is continually trying to re-inject the way that leads to life into a world that has been shaped towards death. John is saying in this passage and in other passages like it, living life shaped by the world is in and of itself condemnation. But Jesus offers an alternative of eternal life to those who will allow themselves to be shaped by the Spirit instead. And this idea of eternal life brings us to our next little tangent that we can go on today. This passage is one of the few in John that uses the phrase kingdom of God. And if you've read much of the other gospels, sometimes called the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have a lot of overlap with one another. They use this phrase kingdom of God all the time. And eternal life doesn't show up all that much in their descriptions. Whereas in John, it's the opposite. Eternal life and life are talked about all the time. And kingdom of God is talked about rarely, if at all. Lots of scholars have seen this as evidence that in John, he pretty much uses the term life in place of kingdom of God. So in a sense, when you're reading through the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Whatever they are saying about the kingdom of God can be transferred or connected to what John is saying about eternal life or life, depending on which passage you're reading. It's kind of an interesting connection. No one is quite sure why John does it the way he does. There's lots of theories about it. 
One possibility is that John is writing more to a Gentile audience and less to a uh, Jewish audience. And so the phrase kingdom of God would not have had much resonance to his early uh, readers or hearers of this gospel. And so he changes it to a phrase that means much the same thing. And we'll get into that in just a sec, but is more um, understandable to his audience. One other point of connection here is that in John, you don't get the parables that you have in the the synoptic gospels, the little stories that Jesus tells. Often those parables are about the kingdom of God. Jesus will start many of his parables by saying, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed or is like a woman who's lost a coin and sweeps through the whole house to find it. You know, like, so the parables are illustrations of what the kingdom of God is. John, on the other hand, has lots of signs that Jesus does, like the sign at uh, the wedding of Cana, where Jesus provides an abundance of good wine. Marianne Mai Thompson makes the point that it seems as if John's signs act almost as parables. They function in the same way, just like a parable is a story that's told to illustrate what the kingdom of God is going to be like. John's signs are actions that Jesus does that show what this eternal life that Jesus has offered is like. And the last thing that I want to talk about on this episode of The Backdrop is the idea of the kingdom of God, this overlap between the kingdom of God and eternal life, because that opens up lots more avenues for us to understand what eternal life consists of. I mentioned on Sunday that eternal life is not you get to go to heaven when you die. That is not how John speaks of it or thinks of it. It's very clear that the life that Jesus is offering is available now and is also the life that is from the age to come is a common phrase that was used in Jewish thought at the time. That there was this age to come when God would put things right and when the life that God had always wanted for the world would come to be. And that was also described as the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is this age to come when God will be fully in control will be fully on his throne again, and the life that the people of God get to experience in that age to come will be the life that God had wanted to offer them all along. This age to come usually is seen as a future tense sort of reality. When God puts things to right, then the age to come, the life of the kingdom of God will come to be. What we see in the Gospels, either in the Synoptics talking about the kingdom of God or in John talking about eternal life, is this idea that the age to come is now. That in some sense, this kingdom of God is starting to infiltrate this world, this age, and is not a purely future tense. Some scholars have described this as already but not yet. That there is some future fulfillment of God's kingdom, that God's kingdom will come in its fullness in the future still, but that we get a taste of it now, that we already are getting to experience the life of the kingdom of God. And we will yet get more of that in the future already, but not yet. And you see that tension all the way through the New Testament, that we are living in the age to come, but not completely. And this is what John is talking about with eternal life. Eternal life is eternal. It is in the future, and it is something that we can experience now when we have been shaped by the Spirit. One of the interesting things that opens up for us when we think of eternal life in John as being connected with the concept of the kingdom of God is that there's an abundance of passages in the Old Testament that describe what God's kingdom is going to be like. One of our professors of ethics at Fuller was a man named Glenn Stassen, and he wrote a book called Kingdom Ethics. He wrote that along with another professor named David Gushy. 
And they talk about kingdom ethics as living the life of the kingdom of God, bringing the kingdom of God more and more into the present and living it out in our daily lives, that that is what Christian ethics ought to be. So they start by looking at the Old Testament and some of the aspects of the kingdom of God that show up again and again, specifically in the book of Isaiah, which is where we find an abundance of passages talking about this future kingdom that is to come. And Jesus, in turn, relies on Isaiah a lot in his description of the kingdom of God as he's teaching or speaking in parables or or doing signs or going about his ministry. So Stassen turns to the book of Isaiah and the passages there that talk about the deliverance that God is going to bring to the people of Israel in the age to come. And he finds certain characteristics that show up again and again. And these are the characteristics of the kingdom of God that we can also find in John's description of eternal life. And so the characteristics that Stassen identifies are these. Salvation, justice, peace, joy, God's presence, healing, and a return from exile. Those, Stassen says, are the aspects of the kingdom of God that were most important in the book of Isaiah, um, in in the Bible as, as a whole. That this age to come, or eternal life, as John says, would be characterized by God being present with his people, by peace instead of war. It'd be characterized by joy and by justice and by healing. One of the more famous of these passages is the passage from Isaiah 9 verses 2 to 7 that we actually read on Sunday that describes the light of God coming to God's people and justice and peace returning and that it would all come through a child who has been born to us who will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But these same images of joy and abundance and peace and healing and justice keep showing up over and over whenever Isaiah describes this coming kingdom of God. And so we can have those same images, those same concepts, those same dreams in our mind as we talk about the eternal life Jesus is offering in the book of John. Stassen writes as he concludes this introduction of these concepts that God's salvation is the kingdom of God. And it means that at last God has acted to deliver humanity and now reigns over all of life, and is present to and with us, and will be in the future. And these ideas that Stassen finds in the book of Isaiah exactly line up with the picture of this life that John paints in the opening chapters of his gospel. There is the justice of Jesus coming to clear out the temple. There is the joy and abundance that Jesus brings to the wedding at Cana. There's the presence of God with us that John highlights in the prologue of the word becoming flesh. There is the healing that Jesus starts to enact in chapter 5 and beyond. There is the salvation that Jesus talks about with Nicodemus in chapter 3. These very same markers of what the kingdom of God is, how it will be in Isaiah, show up as John invites us to come and see the life that Jesus offers. All the way through scripture, there are these themes of justice and peace and joy and healing and God's presence with his people. There's this promise that that is to come, that, this, that, that a life characterized by those themes will come when God's kingdom comes. And now in Jesus, John says, that day to come has arrived, not in its fullness, but in reality. And we can begin to live life that reflects those themes now and eternally. 
That's why we at Pomona Valley Church want to be a community that reflects those same themes of joy and peace, of justice and healing, of opening ourselves up to God's presence. That is why we want to be shaped by the Spirit of God so that we can be a community that represents God's kingdom now to the world around us. I am always fascinated and encouraged by the ways that the different parts of Scripture connect like this. The consistency of the themes and of the dream that God clearly has for God's creation. And the consistency of the message that God wants to work with and through people like us to achieve those dreams. That is always so inspiring to me, and I hope it is to you as well. And we hope that it will continue to inspire our church to be what God is calling it to be and wants to shape it to be through God's spirit. And that seems like a good place to wrap up this episode of The Backdrop. I hope you enjoyed it. As we wandered along some of the tangents that I did not go on on Sunday, but that nevertheless really do fill out our understanding of the passage and what John is trying to get at in his story of Jesus and Nicodemus. We are putting this out on Friday this week, and we hope that you will join us on Sunday when Meredith will be preaching from John chapter 4 in our final week looking at the opening chapters of John and the life that John invites us to come and see. We'll be meeting to worship at our usual time at 4.30 at our house, and you are always welcome for dinner at 5.30 as well. We would love to see you at either or both. Do come and join us. And until then, have a great rest of your week and beginning of your weekend, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.